Hello, greetings from London W10. This is Stephen Coates. I left the uh, dusty office of the Bureau of Lost Culture to come for a wander around these few streets that are squeezed into a corner of the city, edged by two elevated freeways north of Notting Hill. Now, back in the day, I used to live here in a concrete tower on the 19th floor looking east over the city. It was amazing. You can see the Westway winding its way out of London beneath you. Just opposite is Grenfell Tower. That name's probably familiar to many people in the UK. The site of a devastating fire in 2017 that killed 72 residents. Well, the street I'm walking down now is Freston Road. It's a classic London mix. Social housing, some older, more elegant houses. We are next to a, what is now a very expensive part of town some industrial units and a rather fine old Victorian red brick grand building called the People's Hall. It's quite quiet today, there's just a couple of kids. There's a man pushing a pram and some workmen over there. I mean, you never think that 45 years ago, this was the epicenter of a hotbed of countercultural activism, protest and artistic endeavor. In this episode, we're returning to a subject with which we began the series, the micronation, the countercultural country. Back in 2019, we started with a program on Sealand, the smallest country in the world, a tiny state that hovers on a platform in the North Sea off the east coast of the UK. Well, now we're going to go back in time in search of the People's Republic of Frestonia a micronation that declared itself independent of the UK and existed for almost a decade in these streets during the deep countercultural years of the 70s and 80s. And I'm going to head back now to the Bureau to meet one of the people who formed it, who lived and loved in it, a very countercultural life indeed. See you in a bit. Okay, I'm back. Now... First of all, before we start, I'd like to thank Judy, Rob, Peter, Johnny, Rich and Suki who all contributed to our wild endeavours this month. Thank you so much. We very much appreciate the support. You can join them if you like or just sign up for our bulletins at bureauoflostculture.com. Be part of our countercultural community. Right, let's set out in search of the People's Republic of Frestonia. Our guide is a former resident and one of its founders. Along the way, we're also going to dig into her countercultural life, communes in West Berlin and Scotland, gypsy caravans in Wales, home births and hash cookies in a cow shed, and her life with her husband, the social activist Nicholas Albury. And we're going to find out about their amazing work in revolutionising approaches to dying, breaking the taboos that surround death in Western society, bringing counterculture to the undertaking and funeral business through the natural death centre. She's a practising psychotherapist and for over 20 years has run death education workshops, discussion groups, courses, talks, hosted death cafes in her home in northwest London. She even received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Death Oscars in London. She is Josephine Speyer. Hello, Josephine. Hello. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. We did meet last time, I think, in Kensal Green Cemetery, right? Yeah, that's right. And you brought your friend, 
Erlander Haraldsson, who the oh, yeah. Iceland- Icelandic psychologist and psychic researcher, right? Yeah, he's a leading force, really, in that field of uh, reincarnation, but also in after-death communications. Mm. He's it's... now dead, though, isn't he? Has he died? Oh, he's dead, yeah. Oh, God, he's been out of touch with me. He, even shame. from beyond the grave? <laughs> yes, he's been out of touch with me. He stayed at my house several times when he came to lecture in London. Well, I remember because he was staying with you when he yeah. came to talk at Kensal Green Cemetery. Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to come back to the subject of death. We may possibly get onto the subject of life after death if we've got enough time. But, <laughs> but I want to talk about life before death and okay. specifically about your countercultural life um, mm. before death. And we're going to talk about Frestonia, the micronation that existed briefly in West London. But before that, you know, you're not from London, are you? No, I'm German. Because you were deep in the sort of countercultural years and times, um, weren't we? So how did that come about? Well, I was a dropout, I think, from the word go. I was the second of seven children, grew up near Stuttgart in Germany. I, um, my teachers persuaded my father, who was very strict, that I should be allowed to study art. And he said, okay, you can do that if you become an arts teacher. But <laughs> luckily, I did the foundation course at the art school. And then after getting portfolio together there, went to the you know, do the exam for becoming an arts teacher. So I had long hair. I wore (laughs) my brother's underwear as T-shirts because he didn't have T-shirts at the time and jeans. And they looked at me and thought... Hold on a second. You wore your brother's underwear as a T-shirt? No, no. Yeah. (laughs) Vest, I see. I got it. I just couldn't quite get my head around there. You'd fit into a pair of of wife (laughs) No, I'm definitely going to include that. That's German countercultural fashion in the late 1960s. corduroy jeans. You know, Eldridge Cleaver, Angela Davis, these are my Heroes and John Berger, who is a very right. great guy who wrote about art and social mm. change. But um, from Stuttgart, being luckily refused to become an art teacher, went to Berlin. And mm. Berlin, you know, Bader Meinhof was going on, right. Rudi Dutschke, the student revolution. It was tough and it became increasingly um, scary mm. with machine guns, police with machine guns in the street. I think it would be wonderful actually to make a show about. Berlin and Germany actually in the late 60s and Uh 70s but I mean I suppose that time you know it's deep in the Cold War isn't it so Berlin is this little island you know marooned as it were cultural island cultural island Mm. connected by a highway to what was then West Germany yeah right so quite intense times Uh, it was but it also was the place where everything was happening (laughs) you didn't want to be in West Germany at the time you know communes we had these beautiful old uh, flats apartments in these big beautiful old houses and you could rent them cheaply and mm. people could roller skate down their hallway it was so big and right so if you wanted to as it were to use to borrow that american phrase tune in turn on drop out in west germany you could do that by heading down the highway to west berlin yeah yeah live in a commune, smoke dope. Mm. <laughs> I smoked dope mm. in West Germany and it was and I took some LSD and had right. some amazing experiences. But it was always a sacrament. It wasn't uh well and weed was nice for dance. So the arts would change society. Right. <laughs> that was my belief at the time. It does though, doesn't it? Um I, I suppose it is a very important part of it, but not the visual arts. Mm. But perhaps not the visual arts. The music perhaps mm. more so go straight to the unconscious or film. But um, in in West Berlin at the time, you could watch East German television. And I watched a film about Mongolia 
and I love horses. And I, you know, at the time all the hippies went to India mm. and I, or Afghanistan, and I wanted to go to Mongolia, but I was scared to go there on my own. So this sounds silly, but Scotland, the Highlands of Scotland was my European version of Mongolia. So. <laughs> You know, I spend half my time in the Highlands of Scotland. Oh, wow. uh, <laughs> I love so them. I'd never, never connected it with Mongolia. There is something like rather magical and slightly otherworldly about it. Maybe that's uh, it's, it. It's you can in the Highlands of Scotland, you can walk on a piece of ground that nobody's walked on for years and years and years or ever, and that is magical. Mm. The energy is amazing, mm. and. Um, well, I was hitchhiking, uh, first of all, to London from mm. Berlin. I was hitchhiking all the way. I was hitchhiking everywhere. What year was this? Mm, 1970. No, 71. So you were arriving in London. I mean, obviously, as you said, the Berlin life was pretty hippie anyway. But what was it like coming to London in 70, 71? The food was terrible. <laughs> you could not eat anything. I could not believe this. <laughs> you know, Frank Zappa said the poor people of England, they have to eat whatever this crap food. <laughs> it was not true. I, mean, I was brought up on, at the time I took, I drank a lot of cappuccino, mm, espresso, right. and I even smoked cigarettes at the time, sometimes. And um, that you can, you know, but I, eat, I always ate very healthily. So that was a bit of a shock. But the people I met was amazing. So I stayed in a house in Hammersmith with some South African young people who shared a house. And then I hitchhiked up to Scotland. And I stayed in Drumla Drachet, working with a girl who looked after horses and living in a caravan and riding every day. That was my dream, idea of Your bliss. dream come true, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so then the girls thought, are you hippie? Because of the way I dress. There are hippies here. And I went to this. She said, oh, this farm, you know, Grotake near, nearby. So I hitchhiked there. And they were hippies from London. And they came from everywhere, but mostly London. And um, some Americans. And um, they lived in, they squatted this farm. And they, I went to live there. I went to stay there. And, um, were you taking care of the farm? I mean, were you actually... Yeah, we were working on the, farm, the farm, growing yeah. vegetables mm -hmm. and stuff. It's interesting because that's come up a couple of times um, that the, the sort of 60s mm. here and in America too, and then a lot of people were quite, quite exhausted by their experiences, maybe too many late nights, too many drugs, as Miles said. And really the early 70s was when people started to retreat more from the cities to the country to... Do this back to the land. Back to the land, right? Mm. And organic farming and all that stuff yeah. started up, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was very deeply wanting to have a healthier lifestyle mm. and not to be the whole capitalistic idea mm. of cars and mm. waste. And it just, mm. just always felt horrendous. Mm. So that was a shared philosophy. Did you, and in terms of how you all got on, I'm always fascinated by this because I'm a bit sort of OCD. I can't imagine living in a commune, sharing with people. But um, did you all sort of, I mean, was it harmonious or was it was there sort of psychological Ooh. disruptions and I mean, earthquakes going on? I mean, it's different if I'm a guest in Grotek and I n okay. observe mm. the squabbles they have yeah. and stuff. And the poet Neil Oram was sort of the rule of the roost a little bit. 
and they all had a spiritual um, sort of search. You know, they did a lot of, everyone there had a spiritual uh, outlook. And um, I didn't really get involved with the struggles mm. that people had. But they were very, very generous and there was no mental illness and that is above all that's important, you sure. know, how you deal with conflict. So your visa ran out so you had to leave. Yeah, and then um, Pete said I must, he wanted to, you know, buy me a train ticket to London and I should stay at Nicholas Saunders's house who's a friend and rather hitchhiking. So then we took me he took me to Inverness to the train station and let the train go out because he couldn't really bear to part. <laughs> then he said, Okay, I'm gonna take you all the way to London. Introduced me to his mum in King <laughs> in Chelsea and um because he's come you know, he came from a he used to have as a child he had tea with Prince Charles. Right, posh hippies then. Yeah, posh hippies. Posh artistic, creative mm. dropouts, I would say. And um, I met Nicholas Saunders, who lived in this amazing place in Edith Grove in Chelsea. And um, he had a living room that was an igloo made of paper mache. You know, daily life would be happening in this igloo. Everybody, you know. In that the, sounds very 70s. Yes. And his office, his bedroom was an egg. <laughs> Even at Neil's yard, he had a bedroom. He had an just egg any- hanging above the kitchen. Right. Well, just for anybody who doesn't know, Neil's yard just around the corner from here in Covent Garden, which is like yeah. a little courtyard and um, still little bits, traces of counterculture there, aren't there, with the with the, with the remedy shop and uh, there was Neil's yard's cheeses, of course. I don't know if that's still there. Yeah. It's gone a bit, it's gone a bit upmarket since, but he set that up, didn't he? But we'll, we'll come he back did. to that. Yeah, yeah, So that was your intro to, to London was, proper. Yeah. Stayed there, hung out. He was good fun and met my husband later, Nicholas Albury, who he was a very close friend of Nicholas Saunders. And um, we went to, this is what <laughs> Nicholas Saunders told me, he had to go to a meeting, would I like to come? And the meeting was called a CLAP meeting. Well, CLAP means gonorrhea sure. or whatever. Sexual transmitted disease <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sexual of some sort, yeah. <laughs> and um, it was a, one of those projects Nick, by Nicholas set up called Community Levy for Alternative Project. And what he did was he lived in Holland Park and he went round to businesses in Holland Park and Portobello Road and asked them for money so that people could write in and ask for money for a project they were running. And it always had to be a, a sort of alternative project of some kind that benefited society or something. We're going to talk more, obviously, about Nicholas Albury, your husband, um, because he's a very interesting character and, you know, a kind of important activist, I think, in 70s counterculture. He's been a little bit forgotten, I think, in a sense, not by you, but I mean, obviously, by mm. by the sort of histories and stuff, because he was very active with a lot of the important things that were happening. Frestonia, I'm going to talk about, but mm. BIT, you know, the yeah. information exchange yeah. and stuff like that. That's what he learning. did at the time. He was running BIT Help Information Centre. Right, tell us about BIT. Well, BIT was the most chaotic place you could imagine. <laughs> it was a squatted house, or maybe, I don't know how, they got it for almost no money. It was at the corner of Westbourne Park and Great Western Road in Notting Hill. All the area was has now been redeveloped, but they were all old Victorian houses. And... Um, there was a lot of poverty and, I mean, just to say about BIT, BIT was set up by another friend, oh. John Hoppy Hopkins, who was a good friend, um, who also has died now. Um, 
And um, it doesn't help information center for people who needed help, whatever, housing, health, whatever, going to India, people had arrived, hippies had arrived from <laughs> traveling abroad and they brought information about where they went or they even sent letters about their experiences and Nicholas compiled this into a book. Very it was like a photocopied kind of newslettery yeah. thing, wasn't it? Gestetner I mean, was the thing. There was no photocopy at the right. time. You had to do... Yeah, you know. Gestetner printer. And yeah. it was kind of, it's interesting, it's come up a couple of times uh, here because um, obviously Hoppy had set up International Times, uh, yeah. which is based in the same area, isn't it? And yeah. uh, it kind of seems, a bit seemed to, uh, it's almost like a kind of cross between the rough guide yeah. and I guess a sort of, you know, paper version of Facebook or something in some way, wasn't it? It was yeah. a kind of social media for, yeah, I mean, you could for, counter for counterculture, yeah. You could go there and just hang out and mm. meet people and then mm. find somebody to spend the night with or right. <laughs> to take drugs with or uh, to make friends or mm. um, to travel with or give you some advice. And the office mm. was always, I mean, there was always somebody in the office was working for bits. They're all volunteers who had a lot of information and provided the information. It's, I don't know, it's like a switchboard. Mm. I like to hear about this stuff because the sort of idealism and dreaminess of the 60s, things got darker, obviously, because of various things that happened mm. um, in yeah. America and here, and the social circumstances of Britain at the time in the 70s, you know, the economy was in ruins and stuff. And But at the same time, it had this kind of seasoning effect, didn't it, on the idealism, so people like you and Nicholas and Heathcote Williams and they became activists more and actually started yeah. to do stuff rather yeah. than dreaming about stuff. So yeah. that, that, that impetus to sort of change the world, you know, we can change the world, got a bit more concrete right at that time. Nicholas uh, went to Windsor. There was a big festival that, and they were, the police caught, uh, came in and dragged him by the hair. And the photographs of that, yeah, there was a court case then later with Diana Senior Heskett. Heskett Williams' partner and Nicholas against the police and they won. But in the meantime, I was up in Scotland very, very disappointed that Nicholas didn't come. Because you were romantically engaged. Yeah, time, we right? were. Okay. Immediately. So I was back at the commune and there were a lot of changes. And But he had a girlfriend. He had a girlfriend when I came back to London. <laughs> That you didn't know about? No, no, no. no. It's, it's funny because with the last things. episode, which was women, sex, and counterculture, and we was talking with Jill Drower and Jenny Spires, and Jill was saying that you know one of the unspoken rules of engagement at the time, as it were, was that you weren't supposed to mind if your partner had somebody else. Uh, yeah, well, you know, free love. It was uncool that. to actually be bothered about. Yeah, it, no so. possessions. No right. possessions, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. So. okay, so you came back to find him otherwise yeah, engaged. Yeah, as well. yeah, and. Um, yeah, we did some Albion Free State <laughs> um, television program for the election where he wore a Father Christmas beard and an Indian gown and had long hair. And, and Albion just Free State, was a, that was a political party, was it? That, yeah, that okay. he had, he was standing for Albion Free State. <laughs> and Hesgood Williams, his friend, had written the post. Uh, he'd written the, Hesgood had provided the words and, he had written them on sort of, um, you know, paper and held mm -hmm. them up as opposed to, you know, they sometimes do this in ads. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, because he wouldn't speak because he was very worried. His family owned theaters in the West End. Right. And so he felt very, it was very important for him to not be putting them into disrepute. So we're going to talk about Hathcote Williams probably on another program. And again, another sort of important figure in that time, poet, playwright, writer. 
you've just come back from Berlin, find that Nicholas is um, otherwise engaged. Yeah, I went back <laughs> so. to London. And then I decided before I do my final degree show, mm-hmm. I'm going to take a year off uh, from my studies in Berlin mm-hmm. and take and go traveling with a horse and caravan and do landscape painting in Scotland. Right. <laughs> so I came back to uh, London. Nicholas was in America. When he, I met him in the street fly posting one evening, right. and I was staying in a in a squatted house, completely, completely burnt out, terrible house in Freston Road in Notting Hill. He was living at Bit. He had the top floor of Bit, which was basically papers all over the floor, books on the floor, a mattress on the floor, a gestetner, you know, for printing Prince stuff, up. and. A few clothes and that was it. That's how he lived. You won't believe it. And um, so anyway, I lived there with him for a while. Wait, hold on a second. You bumped into him again on the street. Yeah. He was fly posting. You hadn't seen him for a while. Yeah. And then you you just moved in. To... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that was yeah. the seventies. Well, ago, you know, when I moved, just come back. I told him about my plan. He mm. said, "Well, why didn't you write a paragraph?" I put it into the clap thing, and then him and Nicholas Saunders and another friend, Howard from Peace News. They decided how to distribute the money, and they decided to give me some money so I could uh, start this project of, you know, getting a horse. And yeah, and so I'd say, and also in in Berlin, I'd worked and saved money, so I had some money. To, yeah, so then I got pregnant. I went to a commune up north in Scotland, um, uh, Lauriston Hall, and there was a conference of some kind, and so I got pregnant, and. Um, we were completely madly in love. We didn't really know each other, you know. Yeah, so I didn't go back to Berlin. And you didn't no. get the gypsy caravan and the horse? Yes, I did. In Shropshire, there was this uh, heavy horse preservation society, which was just basically one guy living on a completely fallen down buildings, and he had two horses there, um, who couldn't pull a caravan and one of them called Patience is the one I chose and I felt we needed Patience <laughs> I think, for the whole adventure not just that year and Nicholas turned a, a manure car to, with two wheels he put a very tall top on it so he is so tall so he could stand up inside the cart so he came with you? Yeah, yeah, he came with me. Uh, we traveled around, and we didn't go to Scotland because it's too far and too hilly. But we went to Wales, and that was the compromise. Nicholas wanted to visit every commune that existed in Wales, and also a friend in Anglesey. And Machuntles is the alternative technology course, center. Yeah. We went there, and we stayed there for a week. And we always left the horse somewhere. And when we traveled, we always found a, a field where we could you know, park. Then we went, we left the horse for a whole week and went to Barsham Fair in Suffolk, where Nicholas Saunders was selling his books, Alternative London, and lovely, lovely, wonderful. It was totally new to me. It is very much like medieval English life. You know, all the theatre people wandering around. It's, it's amazing. Can't believe it. The idealism of it, but also just the, those kind of lifestyle choices. And yeah, to drop out, to drop not out um, have a career and pay yeah. a mortgage. Not worry about the mortgages <laughs> and the. You basically got into rural England and that kind of bucolic hippie journey. I did very little landscape painting because mm. I only could do that in the evening when we mm. before we went to bed when the sun was going down I did mm. some watercolors and sketching and then 
then you know it was important how the baby was going to be born and where i just felt it's a natural part of life i'm not going into hospital you know we found some young people who owned a farm near newcastle emlyn in wales in october late october we because the weather was turning and it was not so much fun to travel around anymore what year was this 75. We stayed on this farm. Their baby had been born, delivered by a local doctor who came to the house. So I thought, okay. And we had a converted cow shed as a sort of, um, for the winter, as a cottage. And it was very simple. It had a rayburn and a bedroom, a bathroom, and a tiny little living room. And Nicholas and I lived there, and he was writing his autobiography. It was very important to him. He loves the family, you Mm. know. Although he felt they were completely mad. (laughs) Mm. Um, He actually, Nicholas actually went mad, sort of, by speaking in tongues. He was a dropout from Oxford. He went to San Francisco and... uh, He'd left Oxford University, gone west, fully west to San Francisco, and then got fully immersed in that kind of hippie, psychedelic experience out there, which transformed him, right? Yeah, he was a poet, really, in some mm. ways, but he wanted to change the world. And Mm. he loved, he was so brilliant in disseminating information and making it into books, which really Mm. become bestsellers, like Mm. the Poem for the Day book later, or the Natural Death Handbook, Mm. or, you know. um, But at the time, he was his travel guide. He was the shyest person in the world, very anxious, But he wouldn't, but it's like a lot of English people are put on this front and you're very well spoken and you know how mm. just what to say. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's come up quite often um, here that in the 60s in particular, the kind of scene, the underground scene in London was quite small. It was a small number of people. And it's also come out that, you know, quite a few of the sort of what were the main players in that scene were from quite posh backgrounds, yeah. you know. And in a way, you could be a little bit cynical about that, you know, posh hippies and all that sort of stuff. And there was something else going on, which was that public school system, the positive aspects of it, from what I understand, is that it inculcated in people a sense of service, public service. That's why quite often people went into government, etc. Um, and so like Joey Mellon was talking about this, you know, that there was this part of it was like kind of we're the, we're the natural rulers of the empire there's a kind of conceit to it but there was another thing which was that actually it's your duty to serve and I think that even with the counterculture those kids that come from that background they kept mm. some of that with them didn't they yeah like Tony Elliott yeah Tony Elliott time out and uh, mm. uh, 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 Nicholas you know yeah. and, and Nicholas Saunders Nicholas Saunders <laughs> and you know Joey himself and you know Amanda Fielding you know they they had they had that background they did actually do something with it didn't they they were, they were all dropouts they rejected a lot of the stuff that was going on but yeah. they had a sense of power and entitlement in it somehow right so they rejected their background but they kept the sense of, of entitlement and maybe social confidence yeah and that whole thing about networking you know, networking which is, which is yeah the public school system in the uk yeah. still to this day <laughs> i can speak from personal experience yes, okay. I see that that. it's it's not to necessarily that actually you get the best education in the world but it aims at providing a network of as it were like you know minded people which can prove very socially useful and you're an outsider you're a german mm. you're you know you've mm. come to this so it's, it must yeah. be quite weird for you trying to understand it all what happened next we stayed on the farm called green hill and the river tyvee mm-hmm. was flowing <laughs> flowing we stayed there for the birth and um the doctor came to the house it was an indian man the midwife was an elderly welsh woman 
And uh, we had read um, Stephen Gaskin's book, um, Spiritual Midwifery. Spiritual Midwifery, love yeah. it. You've got to love that. Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> and Merlin was born, our son, we called him Merlin. Mm-hmm. The only name I could think of for, for our son. Mm. Could have called him John or Peter. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, yeah, you're living in deep rural Wales. It's got to be Merlin, isn't it, really? <laughs> so we called him Merlin Tyvee, like the river. Right. Mark, in case he doesn't like Merlin mm-hmm. when he grows older. Forward thinking, good. Yeah, it was a fantastic birth. It was like an amazing orgasm, really. The birth was like an orgasm? Yeah. You're going to have to expand on that, Josephine. I had two hush cookies in the evening what? before, <laughs> whilst the contractions were sort of coming. Uh, to help real. with the contractions? No, just to help with the whole process. Don't do this at home, kids. No, no, no. To make hot water in the cottage, right. you had to put the Rayburn on. Right. And that means you can heat water, but you also can cook and bake. And so so I used the bath, <laughs> the hash cookies. It sort of it went well together. You bake them whilst you make hot water. And then I had the most amazing experience in the bath. I was sort of completely relaxing, only my nose sticking out of the bath. <laughs> and... Um, and it just felt every contraction was like riding, you know, like surfing, eee, riding a wave, yeah, without falling off the surfboard. Slightly jealous. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And uh, Nicholas was really anxious, as he normally is. He went to London, he had um, breathing exercises, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. to teach me what to do. And I said, oh, I just do it. Yeah, my body no, knows when I'm a hash cook and get in the bath, it'll be fine. <laughs> my body knew what to do. I was 24, you know, I mean. Sure. Mm-mm. What could go wrong? Wow. Okay, right. Well, that's a um, big countercultural birth event. That's the first. Okay, so now you're a family. I mm. guess at the time amongst your circle was maybe not that common, was it? I mean, the- when I was pregnant, we went to meet for lunch in the King's Road with Nicholas Saunders before travelling with horse and cart. Told him, and his face dropped. You could see it. He's like his playmates, busy now. <laughs> He's no longer. He was so. A bachelor, it's unbelievable. Mm. So you came back to London? Yeah, and we lived in a squat. We moved into into Freston Road. People who left that house, they gave us the key. So that it wasn't wrecked. We're going to talk now about Frestonia. Yeah. Um, but the context of this is squatting, uh, which is these yeah. days seems so alien in London because of the perceived value of property and property rights and stuff. But squatting in the early 70s was very common in London, wasn't it? Because there's so many empty and damaged properties. Mm. So tell us... Your first experience and how it evolved for well, you. Well, Nicholas and Hesket. Hesket was really big into squatting and helping people with getting them crowbars, telling them which houses. It was like the information of the Raftaf Cream Puff Estate Agencies what was a thing that Hesket did and Nicholas was sort of printing all these copies of where you can squat. Right, it was a guide to how to take yeah. a building, wasn't it? So, yeah, and so Nicholas Saunders so had actually written the book Alternative London, which showed you even how to wire everything, how to do a whole room, house yourself. Find an empty building. Yeah. And this is a guide that not only points you at potential yeah. empty buildings, but once you get there, yeah. you know, how to do it in a way that you could then take possession of it without yeah. the police subsequently getting you out yeah and then how to sort of tap into the electrical system and the water system and do all that do and set, all set things, it all yeah. up right yeah. so yeah. so the, so Hethcote Williams was very instrumental in that oh yeah the, the Raftaf Cream Puff Estate Agency was very was flourishing was part was related to bit also because a lot of people needed somewhere to live and um and also Nicholas had 
written a guide how to live for free in London. Anyway, there was a lot of that, how mm. to get things for free, the, you know, leftover food and all of those things. So I always lived in squats. I There was one squat after another, you know. Very beautiful, just off Portobello Road. Very beautiful. I mean, a lot of people and big rooms with high windows and high ceilings. Very nice. And everybody cared, you know, that things were looked after well, that everybody had everything they needed, where, you know, people helped each other a lot. I mean, these were run-down places that nobody was looking after, but so the squatters looked after the houses, you know, mm. by heating them, by... Um, doing them up, making them really beautiful. I mean, you know, there were artists who couldn't afford uh, studios, and here you are. It was a very environmental way of living, wasn't it? Because you're taking a basically a, a, a forgotten, neglected resource. Mm. You know, who knows who owned those properties? Maybe the local council, maybe some distant, absent person. And providing homes for people. And then, of course, you know, there were horror stories too, but the, on the majority was your experience that people were taking care of them and actually yeah. creating an environment. And then that evolved into Frestonia, didn't it? This is a sidebar about Frestonia. Frestonia was the name adopted by the residents of Freston Road in West London when they attempted to secede from the United Kingdom in 1977 to form the free and independent Republic of Frestonia. Frestonia consisted of a one and a half acre triangle of land, including communal gardens, formed by Freston Road, Bramley Road and Shelfleet Drive in W10, where we started. Most of the residents of Freston Road were squatters who moved into empty houses in the early 70s. When the Greater London Council planned to redevelop the area, 120 residents first of all adopted the same surname, Bramley, with the aim of the council rehousing them as one family collectively. But when the council refused to and threatened to evict them at a public meeting attended by over 200 residents, Nicholas Albrey, Josephine Speyer and other activists, inspired by the 1949 Ealing comedy film Passport to Pimlico, suggested that they declare independence from the UK. A referendum returned 94% of residents in favour. Independence was declared on 31st of October 1977. Frestonia had its own flag postage stamps, which were honoured by the post office, passport stamps for visitors, a national newspaper, the Tribal Messenger, as well as an art gallery, a national theatre, and the Frestonian National Film Institute, its first screening being appropriately passport to Pimlico. There were even plans to introduce a currency and applied to join the United Nations. When the state celebrated its fifth anniversary in 1982, the population numbered 97 people occupying 23 houses. That same year, The Clash recorded their album Combat Rock in Frestonia, and Motorhead, Killing Joke, and Girls' School also practiced there. The Republic continued to operate as a collective well into the 1980s, becoming a creative hub for writers, artists, musicians, as well as cultural activists. They attracted media interests from all around the globe. Actor David Rappaport was the foreign minister. Playwright Heathcote Williams served as ambassador to the United Kingdom. They eventually set up a housing co-op in negotiation with Notting Hill Housing Trust and a more conventional local community developed without any claims to secede from the UK. Some Frestonians were unhappy with the consequent loss of independence and moved away. The remaining Frestonians proved incapable of maintaining the ideals of the nation which consequently went into decline. 
Well, in Freston Road, we had the last house, and the people had already squatted everywhere. There were some really bad houses, and the people in those houses, they were not really creative and motivated, and they were too drugged, you know, or or just having a homeless state of mind. But a lot of people, their houses were brilliant. Our neighbor was um, from New Zealand, who made lutes, the most beautiful lutes, and he played lute music, and his girlfriend or several girlfriends actually stringed them were from London Contemporary Dance Company. So there were dancers. Or across the road, there were people who'd left university and or left South America and became sculptors, jewelry makers, and so. And people had children also, several on their own, but some of them lived as a family in the houses. And also students, I mean, I met there I met, for instance, a whole bunch of Austrian and German students who'd come to London to train for as a psychotherapist. So that's how I heard about the body psychotherapy. In, that was your introduction to that world as well then, right? Yeah, but all, I had already done it Freudian analysis because Nicholas and I, we had problems. He's a boarding school boy. What did he ever learn about households and domestic life, you know? cooking, cleaning, laundry. We were sharing half each. So I was painting, he was writing. I was breastfeeding also for the first year and a half. The others with babies, so we were sharing, looking after the children, so you'd have some free time. And we had a self-organized crash, and we had a communal garden that was, was very, very beautiful. Grew vegetables, we had a stream. In London, you had a stream? In Frestonia, we had wow, a stream. Frestonia had its own stream. We didn't have a bathroom in our house. We had to go to neighbor's uh, house or to the swimming pools to have a bath. Right. When we had a coin box in our house, so people who needed phone calls came to our house. So it was, you know, using so one you, another's... Right, so you had a telephone but no bath. Yeah. Other people had a bath. And no we phone. had an outside toilet and only one cold water sink in the mm. kitchen. That's what? how people lived there in the 70s in Notting Hill because the whole area was supposed to be pulled down mm. to make way for um, waterway to the Channel Tunnels. I think it's difficult to imagine it now, you know, that Notting Hill and North Kensington, you know, which is some of the posher parts of London and really super expensive now. Yeah. And gentrified. It's difficult to imagine that, that, you know, what they were like at some... I lived there myself, North Kensington, for many years. Mm. Wonderful houses. So it obviously been quite a lovely place in the past but then it had fallen into disrepute hadn't it you know and with slum landlords and all sorts of stuff mm. and so quite a common experience for ordinary people to be living in a house with an outside loo it wasn't just you you hippies so um uh, and this is the sort of genesis of, of Frestonia. you created a countercultural community basically where you've got a bunch of people living in squats yeah who lots of artists writers social activist types like nicholas and living in this kind of communal way and a sort of countercultural body, really, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. There's a lot going on, very creative. A lot of children threatened to be... Great London Council was going to throw us out. Nicholas and I went with Nicholas Saunders to Christiania in Denmark for Christmas. Christiania in Denmark is this still there, of course, is this kind of little place in the middle of Copenhagen, which is the, feels like a sort of separate country, doesn't it? But around yeah. the lake, yeah. yeah sort of hippie, so hippie commune right in the middle of the People make city. their own houses out of glass mm. bottles and concrete. Mm. And they had their own bakery, Holtwood Bakery. Mm. You know, they had... It was beautiful and a lot of art, artisans living there. Yeah, it was very inspiring. And when we came back from there, my Nicholas felt the solution for us in Freston Road to avoid evic- eviction was to declare independence. And three streets, 
St. Anne's Road, Feston Road and Gramley Road. Can't remember how many people we were, but uh, quite a number of people. We declared independence and um, that became a... Nicholas is very good with the media. He's a theatre guy, really. And um, the media came all the time. We had passports, sumus uno familia. We all one family. That was our slogan. So you all took the same surname. So we all called Bramley as a surname. The Beery House is one family. (laughs) We had one pub, which was a music center, you know, live music playing often. The People's Hall, still there today, was where we had theater and a lot of artist studios. And Heskett Williams had a, a premiere of his play, of one of his plays there. So you declare independence, you declare yourself a republic. You're, you're basically saying, okay, well, we're not part of the UK anymore. We're everything. We've got passports, we've all this sort of stuff. So what was the response of the Greater London Council then? Well, Horace Cutler was running the Greater London Council. He wrote Nicholas a letter saying, you know, it would have been necessary to invent us if we didn't exist. <laughs> so he was kind of charmed and thought it was, because Nicholas was always charming. He asked the, what do you the UN peacekeepers come in in, in case we get attacked by the <laughs> by the UK. <laughs> but we were uh, taking electricity from the UK sure. and water. There was, you know, not paying only, any taxes. I'm trust, I trust. No, we paid one. Then the housing trust took us on. We became officially under there. Then we paid one pound per house as a rent. Sounds terribly exciting. Sort of slightly humorous as well, right? Yeah. And yeah, um, but at the same time. A kind of flowering somewhat of the countercultural spirit of the times. <laughs> I was the Minister of Culture. You're the Minister of Quite Right too, Josephine. I thought, <laughs> I thought I was going to have you done as Minister of Culture or the Minister of the Mind. Or because I was very good at organising big parties right. and big sort of festival type things. Right. See, you know, you have to. Oh, and I devised the flag. The flag was mm. um, like based on a daisy, a yellow centre with white petals. I was doing batik at the time, so I, I made this. <laughs> national flag we blocked the street and we partied in the street and there's mm. so many children and so many musicians and everything mm. you know we had irish drunkard tree surgeons and mm. god knows anything and so merlin's growing up in frestonia yeah so he was two years old when we felt the scrapyard down the road and were burning a lot of tires and every time when they started a fire in the scrapyard we had to go to holland park and uh, it was really worrying the pollution in the area and then nicholas um took the ford motor company and, and they won the court case um to reduce lead in petrol so he had a big effect didn't he yeah also oh. we had to have mm. our son's blood tested for mm. lead pollution and it was uh, not good. And we were anxious n- to get away from the pollution, really. Then the ho- housing trust rehoused people in Shepherd's Bush, and or people just left because they had money and could afford to buy somewhere. Nicholas and I were off a flat in, in Meadowvale. It was only I moved in. He stayed in Freston Road to do his writing, to keep the house for that. But also, I was training as a therapist by then. Right, so you're living apart. We're living apart, we yeah. We're together. But um, looking after Merlin together and mm. spending, in being together. Mm. It got very difficult. There was a very big feminist movement, of course, at the time. I was for a short while, I was part of a women's theatre group. A lot of lesbians, or maybe all lesbians. I wasn't lesbian. I was thinking, would I be, should I be lesbian? Because this is too difficult. The lack of emotional openness that Nicholas, um, that Nicholas and I struggle. Are you with. implying that English men aren't very emotionally open? Yeah, I was. Yeah, <laughs> you have to remember in the seventies it was really sexist. Mm. 
Well, that's absolutely the case. In many, many ways, the counterculture was so progressive when it came to social changes and stuff. But when it came to the relations between men the sexes, and women, it was not good. Regressive, not good. actually. But I mean, at least there was the pill. So now mm. what's happening in America now with abortion, mm. absolutely awful. There was some freedom for women mm. because I think sex is something to be enjoyed. But mm. I think children is something that you need to care about. Mm. Of course, how you care for them, nurture them, is very, very important. I just felt the, the tension between us became too much. You know, we both had affairs and couldn't work it out with each other. The last straw was when Nicholas went on holiday with a girlfriend and they decided he was going to stay with her. And I thought, no, let's get married, you know, be a family and just live together and, and be done. And he said, no. So I broke up. And that was first the relief of the problems that we had and then such a great pain. I felt it was like a death experience. I had friends who had children where they hated the father mm. of the child. I never did, you know. I always loved Nicholas, but I felt it was unmanageable. For two and a half years, we were separate. <laughs> no, so you guys have split up uh, for yeah. two years. Nicholas and I always looked after Merlin taking in turns and I was working at Neil's Yard and then training at the therapy center in Acton. Um, and when I qualified there, I started working in the therapy rooms in Neil's Yard, having a room there. We went in London for Merlin's birthday treat. We went to see Back to the Future. And when I saw the film, I thought we could have, we could be back together again. We don't have to, just because you broke up, oh, you left me because you went with a girlfriend now. So I thought we could get back together again. And Nicholas thought, mm, maybe um, one day a week. The right kind of <laughs> I could stay at his house. <laughs> <laughs> sort of got into doing that. But I found it very painful. But then my dad came over to visit me. He, I didn't get on with him at all. But that, that, that time, that visit in London, something had happened to my dad. He was so warm, so caring, and so non-judgmental. And he went to see my sister, who also lived in the squat in Freston Road, where Nicholas was still living. And um, my sister was still asleep, so he went and knocked at Nicholas's house and saw him and had a conversation with Nicholas and said to Nicholas, how come you can save the world, but you can't save your own family? And that made Nicholas think again. <laughs> so then we decided uh, to get back together. We decided to buy a house. So Merlin was 15 when Nicholas and I got back together again, when we bought the house where I still live now in Cricklewood. I felt like, shut the door and then never look back. Can't remember Maida Vale. Can't <laughs> remember Notting Hill. This is it. Water under the bridge. Can't even, you know, it was just... So you just embraced conventionality. When you live in a squad, you always have furniture given from some here and there. And we had all that furniture. We had not bought any furniture. Only my bed. There was a luxury. Nicholas thought, it's a total luxury if you spend anything on other than books. <laughs> Once when I was pregnant, I said to him, I want to buy, has he got some money? Can he give me some money to help me buy some boots? And he thought, I was going to buy books. <laughs> when he heard the hundred pounds were on boots, he thought, oh my God, it's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so we had um, the furniture we had in our house came from the Cambodian embassy where we had friends in St. John's Wood in the Cambodian embassy, which was a real cultural center. Which was occupied, of course. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was by our friends, mm -hmm. squatted. We've got you guys back together, and yeah. Merlin's happy. So you are it's happy family time, um, still living a kind of countercultural life somewhat. What happens next then? 
His father was dying in Monaco, and he was diagnosed with cancer, and he, um, his wife is Japanese and wouldn't talk about dying to his to him. Whilst we were broken up, I had one whole day when I was running a group on death and dying because we each had to facilitate a group on a subject we were not very familiar with. And I was just discovering, you know, all that literature on death and dying. The breakup with Nicholas was like an experience of death. And I felt that that death was the other side of birth. The contractions come often and they come lesser and lesser and then there is a new life. You know, I just felt that death was like birth, a natural process that you can prepare for and talk about before anybody's ill and dying, and that's the best time. And that now that his father was dying and we couldn't really talk to him and didn't know how to talk to him, that was so distressing. Um, Nicholas, he had this motto, anytime you have a problem, solve it in such a way that you sol- solve it and help other people in the same at the same time. So... The thing to do, we wanted to be educated about death. We weren't experts. We should set up a forum, you know, a place where people can come and talk about death and be educated and from all different aspects, you know. Yeah, so we thought, yes, let's do that. And we set up the Natural Death Center. Nicholas knew Good Banking Foundation. He gave a, They gave us £3,000 to start this project. And Nicholas was very good with the media because this was before the internet. This was 1991. And um, it immediately took off with a very big article by Joanna Moorhead in The Observer. It was like three quarters of a page with photographs of us and stuff. Um, eating ice cream and talking about death in our living room with her. And um, so we had the public came to us all the time. They gave the address, so people wrote to us, they gave us ideas, they gave us information. It took over all the other projects that Nicholas was running. You know, in the you've office. been rather modest about your involvement in it. And Natural Death Center, Natural Death Handbook, and you know, it sprouted into the death movement, all sorts of things. Now, yeah. it's like we were in a country where to talk about this stuff was taboo. But also people, it was shrouded in mystery deliberately, often by, say, the undertaking industry, wasn't it? You know, because yeah. it was an economy of its own. Yeah. People didn't know what happened. You know, they didn't mm. know what their options were, what they could do. And, you know, they were forced into, particularly mm. the grieving, they were forced into by business people into doing things in a certain way. And you guys basically opened the whole thing up. You blew it all yeah. wide open. Yeah. And it's even though lots of those things are still stuck in the past, it has changed things massively. I know myself, because obviously, you know, I curate London Month of the Dead, and, you know, we, we, we also run lots of things around death. And, mm. and you guys were instrumental in this country in that massive, I would say, a massive countercultural change. Yeah, you know, one the of the most important things I think you did, something which has gone from being countercultural to yeah. being cultural, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people say things but don't do anything about it. And I think mm. I'm one of the people who says a lot of things and doesn't do a lot of things about it. But Nicholas did things about mm. it. And so... It was one of the charities he never thought that it would take mm. over our lives, you know. We mm. became experts in not in how to die at home, which is what we thought, Midwives for the Dying. We also tra- run another project, Midwives for the Dying, mm. called Befriending Network, where I could develop a whole educational mm. path for the volunteers to take them through mm. so that they'd be able to support people who are dying at home. But what really took off was the funeral side. And people wanted to 
organize funeral themselves. Mm-hmm. We were not the only ones who mm-hmm. thought this way, but we didn't have anyone to bury. I mean, I mean people, people came to us and provided us information. And, and that really made the whole difference. But also that the media spread the information for mm. us and the public wanted information, you know. This, you have to remember there was the AIDS move, the Terence Higgins Trust. It wasn't anymore, oh, the dying people are old. Young, healthy, beautiful people were dying. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that brought about a change. And of course, then you published the National Death Handbook, which is, becomes a kind of yeah. guide to the, alter, to the, I would say the counterculture of dying, about different ways that you could do it, right? And you can buy the... Natural Death Handbook on Amazon. Mm. Old old copies, I mm. think, is just as good because it mm. gives you the idea mm. what you can do. Because Nicholas put all the letters that people wrote to us, all the information. Mm. He was so many people telling you mm. about idea, giving you ideas, you know. And so that's we're going to uh, put links to all that and all that part of your okay, work great. in the show notes too. Of course, let's move on a little bit because, of course. Nicholas died. Yeah, we need to talk about that. Nicholas and I married in 91, mm. just a month after we started the Natural Death Centre. And our son was 15, and Nicholas Saunders gave us some land as a wedding present. It was surrounded by natural trust land, and it is still so stunning. 98, Nicholas Saunders died in a car accident, doing research for a book with his partner. And it was called the book was called... Um, in search of the ultimate high. He was about to go to meet people who use Ibogaine mm-hmm. and talk with them about it and tried himself and, and to write for the book about it. And they, the car came off the road. He was a passenger. He died of a broken neck. And that was terrible. His wife, Anya, is a good friend. She had been pregnant and had a miscarriage just two months before then. And now he's dead. He was 60. And we organized the funeral on our land, and he's buried on our land. And it was really um, showing people how people can create something that is deeply meaningful and very powerful and beautiful. And it doesn't involve any funeral directors, and it doesn't involve, I mean, everybody was involved, all of us. We were totally capable, you know, physically able and... (laughs) We came together as a community and and created this funeral. Um, and knowing what to do was so empowering. Mm. It helped us so much in this terrible time. And then three years later, Nicholas dies in a car accident, also of a broken neck. He'd gone to see his mom for tea and then took the train home. And she said, I'll give you a lift to the station, somebody crashed into them, and he died. The car spun round, and he had a broken neck, died of a broken neck, and he's buried on our land. And we had many, many times our honeymoon. We had on our, on our land with a whole lot of people staying for three days, and you know this is a land which we're very happy, had many happy memories. Yeah, my son went there when he got married. Right. Had the wedding ceremony on the land with. Everybody camping mm. for several days. Nicholas died in in June two thousand and one, and it was, yeah. And knowing what to do helped so much, mm. so much. We're getting to the end. I mean, and um, it wasn't the end for you, of course. You know, in the twenty odd years since you've carried on, you know, you're a practicing yeah. psychotherapist. You've also stayed 
you know, involved with the Death Cafe movement, which started in 2010 with John Underwood. You know, you're very involved with that, which has spread. I see it also coming out of those kind of countercultural years too. If you sort of look back on all that time, Josephine, how does yeah. it feel? I think I feel so grateful for everything. It was mm. hard, I wouldn't mm. lie. It was also mad, mm. but it was so intense and so amazing. People often say you should write a book, but my God, I can't be bothered because I'm too busy living now. Mm. I'm going back to art as well. I'm, mm. I'm painting. I have a little studio at home. I have a lot of artists around me, especially in the pandemic. It was really good to, mm. to hang out together go for walks and um, I feel death education for psychotherapists is really where where it's at and also looking more creatively at aging mm. so that's my projects now the, um, running groups on talking about death for psychotherapists as well as my private practice thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture thank you so thanks very much to Josephine. I'm going to put show notes to link to her work uh, for you. You can check that out. And check out the Natural Death Centre and Death Cafe, of course, too. Thanks for listening. You can come and join us. BureauofLostCulture.com You can write to us. Suggest themes or guests for the show. Now we're going to finish with a track from our sponsor, The Real Tuesday World. TuesdayWorld.com this is from their upcoming album, Dreams. It's called Bone Dreams Blood. Still in love with Susan 